Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Alan Williams, a sixth-generation family farmer and founding partner of Understanding Ag, the Soil Health Academy, and Regenified. Alan and his colleagues specialize in whole farm and ranch planning based on the concept of regenerative agriculture. They've worked together in all 50 U.S. states and with farmers in dozens of countries globally. Today, we discuss not only what changes can be made in an operation, but also what changes we have to make internally. Alan says the very first thing we have to do is transform our minds before we can start transforming our practices because if we don't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, we'll be hard-pressed to see success. This conversation is going to be great and get you thinking, so let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm very blessed to be joined by Dr. Alan Williams. How are you doing today, Alan? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, you can see on the YouTube channel here, he is outstanding in his uh, pasture, <laughs> not outstanding in his field because he's got a virtual pasture behind him. And and he would tell you, even though you see those broad leaves in the background and most grazers would think those are weeds, those are really forbs, right? So uh, absolutely, I learned from Alan, it's only a weed if a cow doesn't eat it. <laughs> and he, and you have you said you were just telling me a little bit before we started here that you've got your cattle trained even to eat Canadian thistle. That is correct. You know, honestly, we have found that there's very very few forbs uh, that that livestock will not eat. They they can be trained to eat just about anything and to eat it fairly readily. And you know, the beautiful thing about forbs is they're highly medicinal, and many of them are even anti-parasitic in nature. So. They have a lot of benefits. Well, that, that is so true. So let's back up the truck here just a little bit and dive right in. Tell us your story, Alan, how, um, how you got started in, in this uh, area and, and just kind of where, where it's evolved to over time. Be happy to. So I was uh, born and raised on my family's farm in South Carolina, uh, and they've been there since 1840s. So I represented the sixth generation. And when I was growing up, it was a very diversified farm, and we had four generations living there, uh, as well as a lot of extended families. So it truly was, in, in the scheme of things, a family farm, not just immediate family, and it had been that way for, for generations. Uh, so it, it was, I really enjoyed growing up that way, and we had lots of different species of livestock. Uh, we had in the area of South Carolina that we were in, in Piedmont, we had some peach orchards, apples, pears, muscadines. We grew a lot of things like that, as well as some row crop and truck farming. And we even had a general store. So in today's jargon, we were actually direct marketers and didn't know it. Uh, but uh, so, so a wonderful way to grow up. I, I would guess that at least 80% of everything that we ate growing was produced right there on the farm. So, so we were able to eat incredibly well as well. And 
I didn't really realize that till I went away to college at, at Clemson University and uh, ate for the first time in the college cafeteria. <laughs> and I thought, boy, these folks don't know how to cook. And then over time, I realized, no, it's more than that. It's also the food that's being sourced, you know, nowhere near as good as what we were raising on the farm. So uh, got my bachelor's and master's at Clemson, then went to LSU and got a PhD and ended up 15 years in academia. Uh, so I was a researcher. I, I was one of those weird people that had a three-way appointment teaching research and extinct, extinct extension, if I can spit the word out here. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I honestly thought that I would spend the rest of you know, I would, I would do my career in, in academia, and that was my plan. But uh, about, you know, 10 plus years in, I really started noting that there were a lot of things that we were doing academically and in our research that I now term sort of putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. You know, we were, we were spending more time treating symptoms and trying to research symptoms than we were the root cause of our real problems. And, and, and that honestly bothered me. Um, and I kept going back to growing up on the farm and all of the things that we then and even now say we need, all the supplements, all the inputs, all the amendments, everything else that frankly we never used when I was growing up and my family had not used for multiple generations and we're very successful, you know, bought and paid for land, everything else, sent kids to college, you know, you name it. Um, and it really had me questioning, you know, what we were doing. And I had to make a decision. I had to decide, you know, could I do the research and the work that I really wanted to do within academia or did I need to leave academia to get that done? And it became apparent pretty quickly just because of funding availability and research emphasis, I wasn't going to be able to get it done within academia. And because that anything regenerative or along those lines at that point in time certainly was not even being discussed in academia. That was in the 90s, the very early 2000s. And uh, so I left. Uh, I resigned 15 years in, full professor, tenured all the benefits, guaranteed paycheck, I uh, left it all. And, uh, yep. I'd, I'd like to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we have an opportunity to visit with a lot of great researchers on, on the podcast and in other places. Um, speak to them a little bit about just the intestinal fortitude it took <laughs> to do that, right? So you have that because it, you have a guarantee, right, for, for life in that your, your tenure, you, you know, you can't be fired unless it's something very egregious. Um, you know, you, I'm sure it was good pay. I'm sure it was, you know, great benefits and all those kind of things. And then, then here you go, 15 years in, not, not before mm. you're tenured or, you know, those kind of things you're, you're there, you're established. And, uh, what's wrong with you, Alan? You know, that, that's a very good question. And <laughs> I even asked myself that, and certainly my, my peers, my colleagues at the university were, were asking me that and thinking that. That was very clear. Uh, but, you know, 15 years in, you are fully vested. You know, you just have another 10 or 15 years to go, right, to, to you got full retirement, the pension, everything. 
And so, yeah, at the time it seemed like, boy, is this an absolute foolish decision? What in the world are you thinking, Alan? And I'll also have to say we had a, uh, our, our last child had just been born. This was in the year 2000 that I was making the decision. So we had a newborn <laughs> on top of that in the house. And my wife was looking at me like, are you an idiot? And uh, yeah, so, uh, so you're right. I mean, you're tenured, you're there. Uh, you, you've got a guaranteed monthly paycheck. You have all the benefits you could ever ask for everything. But I, I wanted to do much more than that. And I will have to say, it was a incredibly tough decision. It didn't come easy, and and I I questioned myself over and over again. And even after I turned in my resignation, <laughs> boy, did I really question myself. Uh, and and I'll relate to you two comments that were made by my peers at the university when I let them know about this decision. One was, um, well, Alan, what are you going to do? They all assumed I was taking some job with a big agribusiness company or something like that. Well, Alan, what are you going to do? Where are you going to work? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to work for myself. I'm going to farm and ranch, and I'm going to consult. And now this is at a land-grant university, and my peers and colleagues, and they said, you can't make a living farming and ranching. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yes. And that, that was real. That really, really happened by more than one. And, you know, when I said, I'm also going to consult, they said, well, why would anybody pay you for knowledge they could get from the ex extension service at the university? And uh, so that, that was what I was left with. I, I had real support, right? <laughs> by my peers and uh, but I did it and that was in the year 2000 and so we're 22 years into this thing uh, farming and ranching regeneratively and uh, and consulting and of course with my partners we founded Understanding Ag and the Soil Health Academy and things have just been blowing up from there. I, I can honestly say I've never had a day when I couldn't pay my bills We've never gone hungry, uh, and boy, have I enjoyed what I do. We, there is no way I could have ever even come close to doing what I do today have I, had I stayed. And, and this is not condemning the university system at all. I, I was a part of it, but it just doesn't afford you the opportunities that I have today. I've been able to travel you know, all over. Uh, we have been able to be on thousands and thousands of farms and ranches and uh, and to see about every conceivable type of agricultural production you can possibly encounter. Uh, it, it's just been phenomenal. I, I'll, I'll have to say this, you know, I spent nine years in college, right, all the way through the PhD and then 15 years in academia. You add all those years up together. And the truth is I've learned so much more in the last 22 than I ever did in the 24 that I spent in college and academia. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the best is to learn by experiencing and, and yes, it is. observing and, and interacting with other people who have experienced, seen, and observed. So 
that's an amazing story. And I, I would encourage anybody out there who is in academia that, that you have a hint of um, frustration with, um, I, I would say there's a frustration in the system because the research today is largely funded by uh, companies uh, outside of the university, you know, not from, from grants and those kind of things that those are kind of supplemental, right? So the, the problem is, is that if, a, if company A wants to give you money for a research study, they want it to be able to sell product A, you know, so they, they want the result to sell a product. And, and one of the problems with regenerative is you know, we're taking the approach of, okay, let's step back, let nature function as it was designed and not have uh, an input to solve a problem of a previous input that's solving a problem of a previous input. Um, so how do, uh, I, first off, did I fairly summarize that? And then how do we, uh, how do we get research done for regenerative systems when there's not that monetary incentive involved? Yeah, so, so very good questions. Uh, and, and first I'll relate this very quickly that it happened to me multiple times during my academic career with the funding from companies, you know, with products they wanted tested, that the research was not favorable to, uh, to their product or technology or whatever the case may have been. And I was not allowed to publish the research uh, or present the research. So all that work just simply got buried. And, and, and again, that happened to me more than once. And, and, and I heavily questioned that because we are a taxpayer supported land grant university and, and we couldn't allow the research to go out. Um, so that being said, um, the way that we're doing it right now, you know, there, there's a handful of universities that are at least doing some regenerative research and, and, and I'll address that just a tick more in a moment, but, uh, but we're actually doing a lot more private research. Uh, within Understanding Ag, we collect tons and tons of data you know, off of the farms and ranches that we work with and, and constantly collating that data, analyzing that data. We're also uh, you know, doing observations to go along with the data and utilizing those observations to help us better understand that data within proper context. Um, and we're working with other entities where research funding has come from outside of the university and we've been allowed to do, for instance, I've been heavily involved with a multi-regional paired comparison uh, research project where we are looking at neighboring farms and ranches uh, one conventional, the other regenerative. And we're, we're taking a multitude of measurements with a very diverse scientific team. Uh, and, and that research is going quite well and it's all externally funded. Uh, and the great thing is we're not being inhibited with that funding in terms of what we can do and the findings that are being presented. And by the way, there's a host of uh, peer-reviewed articles that will be coming out relative to at least the first phase or two of that research here in 22 and 23. And there will also be a four-part documentary series that is a part of that. So all of this has also been documented on film. Um, now, one other thing I want to quickly address is this 
um, there's a lot of peer-reviewed research that has been published that uses the term regenerative or may use the term adaptive grazing. And the researchers make the claims that they have compared more conventional systems to regenerative or more conventional grazing systems to adaptive grazing. And the fact of the matter is when you read the actual research articles, not the popular press articles, mm -hmm. but the actual peer-reviewed publications. And, and, and get you into look, the methods and materials of how they do it. Yes. Get into the nitty-gritty details. <laughs> yes. You find out they, they actually did not do regenerative and they didn't do adaptive. It was just a, another version of conventional or rotational grazing or whatever it may have been. And and here's the deal, as a scientist, you know, I'm going to make this statement very clear. Our degrees, our masters, our PhDs do not confer upon us knowledge that we do not have and experience that we do not have. So as a scientist, if you have never done regenerative or adaptive practices before, Honestly, you cannot fairly and accurately and unbiasedly research them because you have zero experience in them. So as a scientist, you cannot research what you do not know, just like a farmer and rancher cannot implement what they do not know. So if, I'm going to challenge my fellow scientists here. If you think that you're going to do research compared to, comparing conventional to regenerative, conventional grazing to adaptive grazing, you need to educate yourself deeply first before you even begin to attempt that research. Otherwise, honestly, your research is not going to be valid. And I, I concur with you 100%. A good friend of mine says uh, researchers are not good farmers and farmers are not good researchers. And I really think that there needs to be a, a combination where the researcher comes alongside of the practicing farmer to yes. create the observations. Okay. And much like uh, the large project, maybe you're referring to the Thousand Farms Initiative. Uh, they were just at my farm here last week. And, uh, you know, they're out there counting every bug, every weed, every microbe and, and those kind of things on, on mine. But then I backfilled the story of what, what our practices are, you know, integrated grazing and no-till cover crops, all those kind of things versus a neighbor, you know, that has uh, conventional tillage and GMO and no cover crops, no livestock. So, you know, those kind of things, I think that's where science needs to go because we've spent so much money at, at Ag Solutions Network on systems research. You know, it, we've spent it in California, Montana, and Kansas, and South Dakota. And half the time, we don't do anything back, okay? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a real problem when you spend money and don't get any results back. And, and part two is, is that they, they're using old technology, old planters. They don't know how to farm. And it's just a unfortunate poor quality information. So the more that you can partner with farmers, like you're just suggesting there, Alan, I think that's, that's the way to go. Cause you're, you're, you're quantifying reality, you know? Uh, so that, that's, well, fantastic. you know, you are in, in the other deal that we have to realize about academic research. And again, having lived it, been there, done that, um, the dirty little secret that maybe not a lot of people outside of academia know is that Many times it's not the researchers themselves, you know, the, the professors that are out there in the field every day collecting data. 
its graduate students, research techs, and undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. And then they collect the data. They're the ones out there every day. How do they know what observations to make to go along with the data? And then the researcher sitting in his or her office, you know, they get the raw data in, they do the analysis, but they haven't been out there enough to do daily observations. So you're analyzing data blind. How, how do you, all data must be analyzed and summarized within context, proper context. And that requires keen observation. And that's one of the things we're lacking as researchers, to be honest with you. We have we are not keen observers anymore. Yep, yep, good point. So I think uh, farmers listening to this, you ever have a chance to participate in a large scale project, do it. Uh, because uh, what you're doing uh, can contribute to a true body of observation, we, uh, and otherwise known as science. And uh, we, can, we can quantify what you're doing and make it even better. So speaking of farmers, I want to shift the hat here a little bit because you wear a lot of hats, Alan. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your farm. Uh, you're probably, tell us about your farm, your operation, what you do there, and, and how that kind of started and what it's grown into. It's, it's, uh, that's pretty impressive in itself. Well, we are uh, multi-species, multifaceted. So, um, you know, we do uh, cow-calf uh, finishing. So we, and, and all of that is grass finishing. So we do 100% grass fed uh, and do it quite extensively, you know, at scale. Uh, we also do pastured pork, pastured lamb, uh, poultry. We do, uh, you know, egg production on pasture. We do broiler production on pasture. Uh, we also do uh, market gardens, you know, producing a lot of different types of vegetables and herbs and things like that, and honey production. Uh, so have a lot of beehives out in, uh, you know, some, some timber recreation, uh, host a lot of workshops, a lot of events. So it's a, it, it's a whole hodgepodge of, of things, and all of them are revenue generators. Um, you know, I, I related that growing up on the family farm, we were very diverse. And yet, and that was in the 60s and 70s, and then, you know, we know the direction agriculture has taken, that farmers and ranchers have become highly specialized and almost everything they do is a monoculture, whether it's a monoculture of animals, just cow, calf, just pigs or whatever on any given acre, right? Or a monoculture of crops, just corn, just beans, just wheat on any given acre. And that's their sole revenue stream per acre. And, and I started on an annual basis and I started looking at that and I was like, wait a minute, growing up, we always had multiple things utilizing every acre every year. Why did we get away from that? And so we've gone back to that. And so our goal now is to have a minimum of four to six revenue generating streams for every acre every year. And you know what? That is easy to do. It is not hard at all. And by the way, they're all symbiotic. They're all complementary. They build on each other. We build biology, diversity, organic matter, and carbon, and revenue a lot faster and a lot better doing this multi-species diverse approach. 
We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now, back to our show. So I've, I've had an opportunity to come to a few of your workshops on, on raising cattle and, and those kind of things. So this corn soybean guy here that just started raising cattle last or five years ago knew nothing, you know, starting out. But, uh, you know, I've really appreciated learning how do you tell a finish on an animal and, and, and those kind of things. So it's, it's been great. But in a little, little passing, uh, I want everyone to know that uh, you're, you're in the live, uh, or excuse me, in the fresh meat market. So that's your primary business and you have a load going every day or every week. You're, you're sending a load off that ranch every week. So, I mean, that's uh, that's an amazing thing to coordinate. What does it take to do all these speed? I mean, that's just the cattle. So if you're doing broilers, you know, you, mm-hmm. and, and hogs and sheep and everything else, how much, how big of an army do you have or per eight or people per acre or acres per people to accomplish all this? You know, that's the other huge benefit of this is that compared to all of our neighbors who are much more conventional farmers or ranchers, uh, we actually employ quite a few more people. On average, we employ five to six times more people than any of our neighbors do. And uh, we pay them a lot better because we can afford to. Uh, uh, because of our direct marketing and, and our multi-species, multifaceted approach. So we are actually rebuilding the ability to be able to bring people in from rural communities, give them very meaningful work. And that's the other thing that we found that the people that we have, they are outstanding. And they're, they're just regular members of the community. We didn't go way out somewhere to hire people. We're hiring people from within our own community, and they are very, very keenly interested in what they do. They love it, and they're because of that. They're bought in. They're, uh, you know, they're they're ultimately trustworthy, dependable, and we just sort of let them have at it, you know, so to speak. We give them guidance, we give them coaching, but we allow them to be able to develop the best ways for so we have people that you know they specialize in taking care of the poultry operations and it's amazing what they can come up with if you allow them to Uh, they can be very ingenious very innovative and and so you know we have people that sort of specialize in the different areas the different facets of what we do we allow them to do their jobs on a day-in, day-out basis and, and don't micromanage them. And that has worked out very well for us. Uh, so we feel like we are contributing much more readily to revitalize and rebuilding the rural economies than conventional farms are doing. And we're offering a lot better career opportunities. So one of the things that often comes up when I'm talking to conventional farmers that have gotten into maybe they're all almonds or they're only a dairy or, 
you know, the, the corn soybean of the Midwest or, you know, corn wheat of Western Kansas is, okay, this is great. Okay. But uh, it's a lot of work. And how do I make any money from this? You know, this, you know, the region, it sounds really promising, but how do we, how do we make money? How do we make money from this? And uh, um, what's some of your suggestions and how you help people see past the, uh, the pains of the extra work to the, um, yeah, the extra revenue streams, looking at those five, five to six revenue streams per acre per year and, and overcoming that direct marketing challenge. I mean, there's, there's a, the reason the direct marketing is there's no way to preserve that value on a, on a consistent scale across the country, unless you are direct marketing now. Right. So that's, there's a gap there, but, um, talk to the farmer that says, yeah, this is all interesting, but how do I make money doing this? Yeah. So, uh, first and foremost, what I would say is that there, there are a number of different marketing alternatives that you can look at. And, uh, and there's also emerging growing market alternatives that are coming down the pike. Um, but for instance, if you're doing livestock, let's say you're doing, um, you know, pastured pigs, pastured lamb, grass fed beef, whatever the case may be, or even pasture raised you know, where you're supplementing with grain on pasture. Uh, there are quite a few branded programs that you can contract with. So you don't necessarily have to be the direct marketer. Uh, you can take them to the point of finish, to the point of harvest, and then market them, at, you know, on a dress weight basis to the branded program. So you do get a premium. Now, do you get as much as if you were to carry it all the way out to retail value? No. But it is absolutely a significant premium over the commodity market for any of those species. So, so that exists and that's continuing to grow. And the demand for, for those types of producers is continuing to grow. Uh, and, you know, if you're a grass fed producer, let's say you're a cow calf, what we're seeing are more and more grass finishers that specialize in just the finishing. On, on pasture and what they're looking for are heavy qualified feeders they don't want to have to buy in four weight five weight six weight calves they want to buy in heavy feeders that are 800 pounds or above and so there's growing opportunity if you're a cow calf producer to keep your calves just a little longer you know on grass get them up to that eight weight or so and then market them for a premium uh, above commodity market to the grass finishers is heavy qualified, you know, uh, grass feeder calves. So there, there's a whole host of these emerging opportunities. The same thing goes for development of feeder pigs, feeder lambs for those finishing on pasture. So there's a, a lot of different ways you can sort of play in this, in this sector. Uh, on, on the grain side, what we're seeing is very rapidly growing opportunity for non-GM crops where you can, you can get a premium for producing and marketing your non-GM crops. And we've got a lot of branded programs that are searching for that. They really want that. And, and they're having difficulty finding enough supply, enough volume. So, those markets are continuing to grow and will continue to grow if, if you're producing grains. So that, that's another sector that you can benefit from without you know, going all the way to retail direct marketing. 
Now, that being said, uh, if you do want to carry it all the way out to direct marketing, again, uh, pretty much all of us within Understanding Ag on our own individual farms, that is exactly what we do. And we have found this to be very rewarding. Uh, it, it's actually not hard in today's world. There, there's a fast growing segment of the consumer population that is willing and searching for, for foodstuffs direct from a farm, direct from a ranch, and are willing to buy them from you on a consistent basis. Uh, for instance, like one of our clients, uh, Seven Sons, the Hitsfields in Roanoke, Indiana, you know, they've grown their customer base to more than 10,000 families that they now sell product to on a week-in, week-out basis from a single farm. So, uh, so it's, you know, it's not hard to do. You need an education, just like you would educate yourself in any other endeavor that you would do. And, you know, we offer help in that regard. Uh, Seven Sons offers a lot of help. There's a whole host of educational opportunities to be able to learn how to effectively direct market, to learn about the processing, the cold storage, the packaging, fulfillment, all of those types of things. And what we do is we just simply hire people because you can afford to, okay? You hire people to do this. It's not that you have to do everything you can't. And, and if you think you are, you will fail at one or more of the things you're attempting to do. Uh, you either have to have family members that that is going to be their primary job, okay? Sales, marketing, whatever the case may be, or you've got to hire the people that can get that done. But my point here is that you can afford to do that and you can afford to hire good people and good people make you money. So to summarize that a little bit for the farmer that's saying, how do I, how do I get any, make any money out of the regen? First off, um, you're asking the wrong question. I think you, you, um, you can, you know, it's like, yeah, just, just look for it. And I, I think that sometimes it just, oh, it's so, so different thinking that we, we mentally lock up. And like you said, there's more margin in there to have more people. You have to grow beyond yourself as a farmer, especially if you're the farmer who's the owner operator, right? So yes, going from an owner operator to a business owner, that's a big step. And, uh, you know, there's, there's other resources out there. You know, I, one of my th favorite books uh, early, early on was uh, Robert Kiyosaki's book, where he talks about going from an employee to self-employed to business to investor. And uh, I, I think that's a good, just a mindset thing. But bottom line, you're saying today, there is more than ever marketing opportunities to correct, to connect direct to consumer. It's easier than ever. Uh, we have better technology than ever to do it. Um, so, uh, and finding those other markets, whether it's, you know, a specialty grain or non-GMO, whatever, it's as simple as spend a little time on Google and you can find it, right? So um, bottom line, Alan Williams says, no excuses, get to it. Can I, can I quote you on that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> But it, it is really better than ever to, to, to go after uh, these type of opportunities. So once a person makes that decision, talk now a little bit about understanding ag. You do a lot of webinars. You do a lot of uh, schools on site at various farms. 
you know, I've, I've been to the hits fields, like you mentioned for one of the, uh, trainings that you did there, uh, you, you do other things with local, um, or state resource conservation districts and, and those kind of things. Talk about your goal there. And, and essentially what you sell at understanding ag is education, you know, so, uh, how, how do you, how do you connect with farmers and how do you, how do you get that message out there? You know, that's exactly right. And, and I relate this, that um, when my partners and I founded Understanding Ag, we made the uh, distinct decision that we would not rep products or technologies or anything like that and so that we could remain unbiased and we could accurately and unbiasedly represent anything that we were recommending to a client without that client thinking that we were receiving a kickback, a commission, whatever the case may be. And we have stuck to that. Uh, we, there, there are no, you know, companies or whatever that we rep uh, and we flatly refuse to do that. Now, that being said, that allows us to be able to evaluate the array of companies, products, services, technologies that are out there in any one given region or area, we can, you know, accurately recommend to our clients what is going to work best for them within their context. Mm -hmm. um, so our website, uh, well, in, in both our understandingag.com and soilhealthacademy.org websites are loaded with free information. And I would uh, tell everybody, take advantage of that to begin with, to start your education process. We have podcasts, we have webinars, we have presentations, we have articles and recommended reading and on and on, uh, case studies. You know, our, our websites are loaded with free information that you don't pay a penny for. Uh, so take advantage of that, you know, start your learning process. Then we have our in-person soil health academies uh, that, that people can, you know, register for and attend that are, you know, highly hands-on, always on a host farm that is actually practicing regenerative agriculture. Uh, we have a lot of scholarships available for those if they need a little bit of financial assistance to attend one. So, and you can go online to soilhealthacademy.org and just fill out the scholarship application. It's that simple, right there online. Uh, the, the other thing that we offer is we are now doing online curriculum. Uh, so we have Regen Ag 101, which is an excellent tool for people anywhere in the world that they can access. We have an adaptive grazing online course. Uh, here in just a few months, we'll be coming out with our first uh, regenerative cropping and cover cropping online course, and we're going to continue the online curriculum as well. Uh, and obviously, beyond the Soil Health Academies, we do a whole host of other workshops around the country and in other countries that people can take advantage of. No, it's a, there's some tremendous resources there. Uh, I have... Uh you know, attended, like I said, one or two of the, uh, academies and, and great, great opportunity to plug in and, and learn. And, 
uh, ultimately try to find one close to you because of the context word that Alan's brought up several times. Understanding your local context is uh, is a key to things, and really uh, uh, things the principles remain the same, but the application changes from location to location. So have to always always keep that in mind. Um, one of my favorite sayings that you use in these academies is uh, compounding and cascading effects. And um, I'd, I'd like to spend a little time with you on, on that. What, what is a compounding and cascading effect? And how does that apply to what we're doing in farming, whether it's conventional or regenerative? We're always experiencing compounding and cascading effects. Dive into that a little bit. So we call it the rule of compounding. And uh, it's part of uh, our three rules of adaptive stewardship. And basically, in a nutshell, what it means is this. There never are any singular effects, ever. We're dealing with nature. We're dealing with biology every day. We're dealing with weather. Anything that we do, any management decision we make, anything we apply, any tillage, anything we plant, whatever we do creates compounding, cascading effects. And these effects are never neutral. They're either positive or they're negative. So the key here is we first have to realize that compounding effects are always occurring regardless. We, we, we can't escape those. And secondly, that because that's a fact, we have to be diligent in our observations, our decision-making and our management applications to make sure that as many of these compounding effects are positive as possible rather than negative. Uh, you know, I often tell people that, you know, a lot of times we think that if we apply a herbicide to target a specific, and here I'm gonna use the word I never use, weed, right? <laughs> a target form, a, a form form in there disguise. you go, a form <laughs> in disguise, uh, that that's all we've done. Right. All I've done is I have just killed that weed and that's it. But no, we have set in motion this entire series of compounding cascading effects and that herbicide has impacted whether we're willing to admit it or not. That herbicide has impacted a whole host of other organisms in the soil, above the soil, so on and so forth. And the very fact that we set back or, quote, killed you know, that forb, that forb was growing there for a reason. It was growing there almost always to repair something that has gone awry in the soil. And so we just short-circuited that without even realizing it. Uh, so again, this rule of compounding is, is something that we pay very, very careful attention to now. And it is first and foremost in our minds every day on our own farms and who are working with clients. And I think, um, you know, on a row crop context, I, I just made a comment on social media about uh, being awoken by the uh, Ag Air Force, you know, flying over my house. And uh, right now, um, uh, you know, when this airs, it's going to be past the application time. But uh, uh, we've got uh, the Air Force spraying on fungicide and insecticides, uh, the fungicide, because we're afraid of tar spot, we can't spot it and uh, ahead of time, and it's going to creep up on us and get us. And we've got this $6, $7 corn, we got to protect it. 
And then, oh, well, you're over top of the field anyway with the applicator. Why don't you just throw in an insecticide? It's only three or five dollars and it'll pick up those pesky Japanese beetles. Well, you know, I look at we're doing IPM and the scout reports from a third party says there's no disease, minimal disease, and it's on the lower three leaves, three or four leaves. And um, so, you know, when we make that decision to apply a fungicide, we're inadvertently affecting fungal uh, beneficials within the soil itself, which are great at decomposing residue, right? So then because we don't decompose residue as well, and we sprayed the insecticide that knocks down many of the millipedes and, and other residue decomposing insects that are in the soil. We harvest our big yield corn, right? And we have all this stover on the ground and that stover is GMO stover. It's BT. So it's more lignified as BT. Uh, and when the more BT events you have, the higher the lignification, which means you know, for a cow guy, do you, how much lignin is digestible in a cow, Dr. Williams? Oh, very, very, very little. Zero like percent right. is digestible. So we've lignified that. We've made all of our uh, soil microbes not able to digest it. So what do we have to do then? Well, we have to run a turbo till, right? We just break it up to stir it in. Well, we run the turbo till. Then what happens when we get a big rain? It don't soak in because we've made a layer and it shoots all the residue off into the, and so that's the, that's the idea right there, right? So just by that airplane pass, we're setting ourselves up to do tillage, to create erosion, to, to nuke our beneficial insects, to hurt our soil biology. And the sad part is most guys don't even know that. No, you know, they're, there's not a herbicide, fungicide, insecticide, parasiticide out there that is target organism specific only. It's impossible to develop something like that. You, you can't do it. Uh, and so, you know, every one of those absolutely impacts the multiplicity of other organisms that are highly beneficial to us. And in the advent of destroying or trying to get rid of, you know, the pest, we're also getting rid of an entire array of beneficial insects that would have preyed on those pests and kept them in check. The, I think we're forgetting something in agriculture here. And this is both in livestock and crop agriculture. Is it the goal is not to eradicate all disease and all pests. As a matter of fact, that will be the wrong thing to do. Oh, you can't. It's you impossible. can't. It, it is impossible. Rather, the goal is, you know, we want to create environments and ecosystems where we have the beneficials that can prey on the pest, and we have the mycorrhizal fungi and other or microorganisms up underneath the soil that provide the immune response for the plants against fungal disease. That's what we want and what we need. But the very nature of what we're doing, we're, we're actually destroying all beneficials that could prey on the pest. And we're destroying the entire immune system that protects plants against fungal disease. If you look at the amount of insecticides and fungicides that we're using today compared to three, four, or five decades ago, it's dramatically more you know so how are we my question is how in the world do we think we're making things better when we're using more of all of these sides instead of less my favorite word sustainable you know 
oh, if I, if I, <laughs> that is a word that is just drives me nuts because what we're doing, there's no way we can do it for a thousand years. And, right. and that to me, if you can't do it for a thousand years, it's not sustainable. So I'm going to uh, contend we can't do it for another hundred uh, uh, from what I'm seeing years. out there. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're burning through our soil so fast and, and it's so sad. So let's, I, that's one. Okay. So I, we're going to go a little, little deeper thinking here. And um, so I'm out there with the thousand farms initiative and I'm looking at this field. Okay. And we've done for an agronomic crop. Okay. An annual agronomic crop, the best that I think we can do. Okay. We've grazed it with 150 head of cattle. We were rotating. We gave them 20 acres a day. We we're rotating around there like eight times, you know, multi-species cover crop. We, we no-till planted non-GMO beans with no neonic insecticides. I mean, we're, we're doing everything we, the best that we can with what we know today in an agronomic system. It's still soybeans on 30 inch rows with some residue covering the ground, probably because the cattle impact and, and trotting on it and stuff like that, probably 60% residue cover. Uh, no infiltration problems, that's working great and everything. But you look at it and then I go five minutes later and I hop in the pasture and it's just teeming with life. There is insects, there's birds, there's predator birds, there's just a diversity and abundance like you cannot believe. So I'm sitting there and I think to myself, I've done everything I possibly can is the, to the goodest that I can on the soybean field. And it's still, eh, it's marginally better than the conventional comparison. It's better, but just marginally. You go to that, that pasture ecosystem and it's like a thousand times better. How can we move from a annual crop based food production model to a perennial based food production model because I've just come to the understanding that that's what we're going to have to get to with maybe alley cropping and perennial plants in order to support the ecosystem services in the way that we need to. So I'll let you take a stab at that one. How do we do that? How do we convert how we've done things really for 10,000 years with the plow? Yeah, so honestly, the very first thing we have to do is transform minds, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it must start there before you can start transforming the practices. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if you don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, you, you are going to fail. And you're going to end up saying, well, this doesn't work when it does work. Uh, so the mindset, the education part is the very first thing that has to happen. Once you understand what's possible, then it's you're much more readily to start to adopt some new practices and, and, and principles that are going to allow us to begin to achieve this. Uh, secondly, we are going to have to continue to develop you know, a lot more perennial crops, uh, you know, like blue salish wheat, things like that, that, that allow us to be able to do some perennial cropping. And that that's very possible. That's very achievable. Uh, the third is even on annual crops that we feel like we can never turn into perennials, we have to be far, far more diverse in both our cash crop rotations and in the complexity of the covers and animal impact and all of that in between the cash crops. Uh, I, I tell people now, 
corn and beans is not a rotation. Okay. Uh, we've called it that for decades, but it, it, we've been doing that exact same thing for decades now so that our soil microbes, our soil, everything has become accustomed and conditioned to that. And you've got to shake that system up a lot more than that. Just corn and beans, corn and beans, corn and beans. It, it's not enough. I'm sorry. You know, you, you're going to have to introduce a lot more complexity in that cash crop rotation. And as I said, then the, then the cover crops in between. Uh, I, I'll, I'll relate one, one example to you here. So uh, a client's dairy in Missouri, uh, they are... They, they were used to be conventional, but now they're doing a lot of really complex covers. And they are actually now starting to harvest the complex covers as their silage instead of, you know, just a monoculture silage. Mm -hmm. And I was out there in May in their, in their cover crop fields, and they have a direct next door neighbor right across the Gravel County Road. That's a very conventional dairy farmer. And uh, in their cover crop field, and by the way, we happen to have a couple of uh, a large dairy company, I'm not going to call the name of the company, but a couple of large dairy company representatives there that day with us. They were blown away by the diversity that they saw, the number of flowering species, pollinators were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't believe it. They had never seen that before. I mean, butterflies, wild bees, all kinds of stuff. They were also blown away by the number of birds and bird species that were present in that cover crop field, even hummingbirds. Okay. There were lots of hummingbirds in the cover crop field. And, uh, and I just had them be silent for a moment and they listened and the noise, the cacophony of birds and insects, you know, was, was astounding. We stepped across the road, went into their neighbor's field, and, and uh, the neighbor had had the typical corn silage. They were doing corn on corn, right? They had a thick residue of last year's corn stover still on the ground, you know, undegraded, and no life. It was silent. It was quiet. There was, uh, you didn't see the insects, the pollinators, the birds, you know? just stepping across the road, that much of a difference. So that's what we're seeing. So we have to rethink both the perennial crops. We have to think, rethink the complexity of our rotations. We have to re-involve livestock as much as we can because they do play a critical role in restoring ecosystems, restoring organic matter, carbon, uh, photosynthesis. And we have to think about what I call photosynthetic leakage. I now want, I really don't want to grow a monoculture anymore, to be honest with you, because I have way too much photosynthetic leakage, sunlight that never hits a leaf and just hits the ground and is wasted. I actually want a multiplicity of leaf architectures and height structure. I want low, intermediate, and taller structures so that as sunlight filters down, a leaf is going to catch it and intercept it because, by the way, those are the very best solar panels ever designed 
man cannot design a solar panel as effective as and efficient as a solar panel of the leaf on a plant. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. So don't don't waste a single drop of sun. So that's exactly uh, that is a that is a key key point. Well, Alan, before we uh, we have to part ways today, uh, anything I should have asked or or things that you want to bring up and and share with our audience? Well, I would just like to say that don't view regenerative as a daunting task. It is not. As a matter of fact, I enjoy life far, far better now. It's exciting. Every day is a day of discovery with regenerative. And I'm talking about positive, exciting, you know, invigorating discoveries. Um, if you if you educate yourself, we call it the six, three, four, the six principles of soil health, the three rules of adaptive stewardship and the four ecosystem processes. If you educate yourself on the six, three, four and how to properly apply the rules and principles within your context. And again, that's what's important. It's not everybody else's context that matters. It is your context on your farm, on your ranch. If you do that, this is one of the best journeys that you can ever take in life. It's not just rewarding from a quality of life standpoint. It is rewarding from the fact that you are building new soil and carbon. You are building biology. You're building intact and entire ecosystems. You are bettering our climate and you are producing foods that are far healthier for you and everybody else. And oh, by the way, you're also gonna be more profitable. So where's the loss here is what I'm gonna ask. Where's the loss? And I think that's the ultimate job of a farmer is you need to fully understand your context. And that isn't just yes. your geographical location and your ecosystem, your, your, those kind of things, but you have to understand your abilities as a person, your leadership style, your personality. You need to understand your financial uh, situation, what you can do, what you can support, um, you know, your spiritual situation. Um, you need to understand you as a farmer and that is what that context is. And then once you, once you have that understanding, everything else fills in that, but you have to, it's really almost a reflective look at what, what can I do? What do I want to do? And, and, and figuring out how to make those two congruent. So, no, I, I really appreciate our discussion today, Alan. And I, and I thank you for all of the tireless effort that you've done and you've got a true teacher's heart um, and you've got a, a real knack for leadership and, and how you've led farmers all around this world to, to do better. And uh, I think we have a mutual goal of by the time that we retire, uh, regenerative farming is the conventional farming. And uh, I sure thank you for what you and your teams are doing to, to make that happen. Well, thank you. It, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honor, and I, I truly appreciate this opportunity. All right. Take care, and I hope to see you in a pasture sometime. You bet. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Have we got you thinking about your why? Did we strike a nerve? 
We hope this conversation with Dr. Williams has inspired you to examine the opportunities in your operation. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.